0: In 1874, 181874, there was a fire that began and it was unquenchable. It was it was a fire that continued to rage on. Not for a year, not for two, not for five. Not even for a decade, but decade after decade after decade. The fire was raging on. It was it took place in one of the providences of China in a coal mine. It was being fueled by 2 million tons of coal every year. And that fire kept burning and burning and burning year after year after year. 126 years later, the Chinese firefighters with the best firefighting equipment that money could buy, by the way, they didn't have to borrow it from us, began in earnest to try to put out that fire. They spent $12 million. And at the end of four years, they finally succeeded in extinguishing that fire. Imagine a fire burning for 130 years, continuously. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about a fire that's been burning for a lot longer than 130 years. In fact, it is one of the mission purposes of Jesus. He said he came to ignite a fire. The verse can be found in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to set the earth on fire, and I wish it were already burning. Some translations say I've come to set the earth on fire, and I would or I I desire that it was already kindled, but it's the, same, it's the same sentiment. Jesus came to start a fire, and that fire has been unquenchable for the last 2,000 years, though men and devils have tried to quench the fire. They've been unsuccessful. No weapon formed against it has been able to prosper. We want to consider this morning what Jesus was talking about in the context But I want to look at a parallel scripture from the gospel of Mark because Mark brings out a couple of more nuances than Luke, but but it's the same setting, okay? But if you're here today for the first time, I want to welcome you as well. Uh, I just want to fill you in really, really quickly on where we've been so that you know where we're going this morning, okay? So Christ came, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came, the Bible says, to uh, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us so that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might from our innermost being cry emotionally, Abba, Father, Daddy God. Last week, what we said in our message was that One of the mission purposes of Jesus was to remove the middle wall of petition that existed, the prejudice and the bigotry and the hatred that existed between both Jew and Gentile and to make of the two one new man in Christ. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the fire that Jesus said was his mission to come. And and what we've been doing throughout this series is seeing that his mission has really been very complex. That he had a lot to accomplish and that Jesus would be sufficient to accomplish all that he purposed. So the following portion of scripture uh, is said to be one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, It's thought to be at the time, certainly when it was spoken, it was cryptic to say the least. Uh, it It was scandalous in some ways, especially in a Jewish family value culture. And uh, as we're going to see, and I, I just want to remind you that last week I said that Jesus often, he often offended the mind to reveal what was in the heart. When the mind is offended, the heart comes out. The, the heart, the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, so, so let, let's look at this portion of scripture. It's the same context, the same setting, but a, a couple of more nuances that I wanted to bring out in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 34, do not think, do not think, Jesus said, I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Luke says division, same purpose. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies, make note of that, will be those of his own household. For he who loves father or mother more than me, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, and he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake, my sake, will find it. As Lord and Savior, Jesus has every right to make demands upon his followers that we put him above everyone and everything else in this world and love him with a passion that can only be described as a fire that he ignites in the heart. Hard saying of Jesus, you know, especially in that first century. You know, I don't get it, you know. I've come to bring, is is? is it, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, isn't he the prince of peace? Didn't he make peace through the blood of the cross? You know, and, and, and the scripture says that believers have a, a peace of God that passes human understanding, you know? Didn't the angels announce at his, at his birth peace and goodwill toward men? So what's this idea that he did not come to bring peace, but division? The Bible makes it very clear that there is no peace for the ungodly, says the Lord. There's peace, and I'm going to give you a verse of scripture that's going to be so, so, so great to know that even in the midst of conflict, you as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Jesus, can have a peace that this world cannot have. He said, my peace I give you, not as the world and not to the world, but I give you my peace. Believers have a peace. In this life, there's really only two kinds of people. There are those who are saved and there are those who are unsaved. Maybe we could say there are those who are on the way to being saved or are not saved yet, but really there's only two because you're either alive or you're dead. There's only one or the other. And so there's only those who have received mercy and grace and those who are graceless. Those who are believers shall not be condemned. Jesus said, but they that believe not are condemned already. You're either in Adam And in Adam all die or you're in Christ where all shall be made alive. Only two kinds of people in this world. The words of Jesus therefore mean that there's no neutrality. There's no no middle ground. You're either for me or you're against me. And this is one of the hard sayings that Jesus required of his disciples to know. That you're either all in or you're not in at all. And so... We look at the words of Jesus in this particular portion of Scripture. The words, you know what, may may not be very meaningful to to everyone this morning in this room at this particular moment. But I have a feeling that they are very meaningful for a good number of you. For a good number of you have found, especially when I emphasize that a man's enemy shall be they of his own household that you know what it's like to have conflict and opposition and even persecution coming from people that you love, members of your own family. It could be coming from a spouse that doesn't believe like you do. And therefore, there's always a a clashing of of vision and a clashing of of priorities. And and why do you give so much money to the church? It's, It's never, why do you give so much money to the cause of God? It's always to the church. Maybe it's coming from a parent that is not very enthusiastic about you spending so much time at church. Maybe it's coming from a sibling who thinks that you're just going through a, another phase in your life, another fad. Maybe it's coming from not a, a, a parent, but maybe it's coming from a child to, to a parent who doesn't understand, who, who, who's never made the connection of Christ the Savior. And so... There's an unequal yoking even between father and son or mother and daughter. That's the division that Jesus said, my my presence will make in this world. There'll be a dividing line. It has to be that way. Conflict will be inevitable. And I believe that these words that were spoken by Jesus were meant to be comforting and encouraging to some of you in this very room this morning who have experienced just that. Maybe the conflict is coming from Maybe it's, maybe it's coming from a teacher. Maybe it's coming from a professor who is constantly belittling Christian values, Christian beliefs and faith in their class because they have an agenda. Could be coming from a whole bunch of different sources, this kind of opposition. But, but know this, that, that, that even though this might be called a milder form of persecution, when it comes from the people that we love, it's emotionally distressing, and it's hard for us to bear. You know, that old saying, you always hurt the one you love, you know, that especially applies in a case like this. But, but I want you to look at how Jesus, what, what was Jesus doing? He, he, was, he was speaking these words to prepare the disciples to expect hostility and opposition and persecution. Persecution. To be prepared, to to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so Jesus was forearming them with his words. Look, Look at how John puts it in John 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In other words, what I've spoken to you, these words of warning that I've given you, they're meant so that you can have peace even in the midst of conflict. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, don't be surprised by hostility. Don't be surprised. If men will hate you, they hated me first. Don't be surprised when you run into conflict coming even from those of your own household. Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, he says, all they that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience, will suffer persecution. It's inevitable. And though we perhaps have not seen a whole lot of it in our lifetime, in this country, handwriting's on the wall. I've spoken to you before in the past, giving you the statistics. And just to simply say this again, that more believers in Christ Jesus have been tortured and imprisoned and put to death in the last 100 years than in the accumulative previous 1900 years, and it's accelerating in this world. The handwriting is on the wall in our own country, and it's coming a little at a time, and it's and it's and it's you know it's eroding our 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 Christian, I won't call it religious freedom. I'll call it Christian freedoms. You know? It's coming from it's coming from Hollywood's Antichrist attitude toward believers. It's coming toward the drive-by media who constantly are putting down Christian beliefs and values. It's coming from a whole number of sources. In the universities, forget about it. You get a good dose of unbelief and you don't even have to sign up for that course. It's it's it runs through each of their their courses. So Jesus, who knew about opposition, who at the time himself was being persecuted by religious leaders and was beginning to be, at this point in the ministry, rejected as a whole by the nation. We like your miracles, but we don't like you as Messiah. Even the members of his own family, James and Jude, thought that he was insane and beside himself and tried to restrain him, according to John chapter 7. So Jesus knew that even those of your own household will be in opposition to the purposes of God. No wonder why Jesus said, I've come to set the world on fire, and I would that it was already burning. Now, some commentators, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, in fact, most commentators that I consulted, which I'm in disagreement with, (laughs) uh, speak about this idea of Jesus sending fire upon the earth as being judgment, Jesus speaking about judgment coming. And, and I will admit that if you look in a concordance and you go through the uh, idea of fire in Scripture, you, you will find, as the law first mentioned, that the first time that, that fire is mentioned in Scripture, it's in relationship to the fire of God that fell from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that certainly was judgment. And the Bible does speak about fire and judgment. The second time that the word fire is used in Scripture was when Abraham and his boy Isaac are walking up the mountain to worship the Lord. And, and, and Isaac says, Father, the, the fire we have and the wood we have, but where is the lamb for sacrifice? And he says, don't worry, son. God will himself provide a sacrifice. And that typical, that typical sacrifice was to point to the ultimate sacrifice in which the fire of judgment did fall, but it fell upon God himself in the person of his son at the cross, where Jesus bore the fiery wrath of almighty God against sin for us so that mercy might be extended to us. In the process, what has happened? Not only has our sins been forgiven in the process, but he has ignited a love and a gratitude in the hearts of those whose eyes have been opened to see the amazing measure of his love for us. It can't help but melt the heart. It can't help but create a spark, and then from a spark to a flame, and a flame to a fire in the hearts of followers of Jesus Christ that has been burning and burning ever since this gospel began to spread. Like fire sparks, persecution only fanned the flames of, of, of the Christian movement. When, when Saul of Tarsus made havoc upon the church and the believers were scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word of God. Like sparks from a fire, the fire of God spread. And that fire was a fire that was meant to be in the hearts of followers, creating a passion, creating a zeal for God, creating a desire to make Jesus first and above everyone and everything else. Jeremiah knew a little bit about this fire that I'm talking about. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He had lots of opposition to his message. His message that was that judgment was coming and that and that that you you need to turn back to God. God's people were grieving God tremendously. The Bible says there was no remedy, and they were to be taken away into captivity. But Jeremiah experienced opposition because of that message and, and punishment and imprisonment. And at one point, Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah chapter 20. I heard many mocking. Fear was on every side. Then I said, I will not mention his name nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart burning like a fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. I could not. I could not. Could not hold it back. I know what that's like. Paul the Apostle knows what that's like. He said, he said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel, for there is necessity that has been laid upon me to speak, to speak of the wonder of Jesus, to make much of him and little of us. The disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, depressed, discouraged, despondent, downcast, disillusioned, talking amongst themselves. Whole hope was gone. For the Savior, who they believed was Messiah, was crucified. And now there's even been reports that he was alive. And the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, joins himself to their company. They don't recognize him. Their eyes don't see Jesus. And he says, guys, what are you talking about? And they said, man, where have you been? And and they engage in conversation. And then Jesus breaks, breaks in with this. Listen. He says in Luke 24, verse 25, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not, should not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And at the beginning of Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when they drew near to the village where they were going, he indicated that he was going to go a little bit further. But they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And it came to pass that as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he blessed it, but their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished in that moment from their sight. But I love this last line. They said one to another, each of them, not just one to, to one, but one to another. They said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures? Beloved Jesus is still opening hearts and, and igniting a fire in the hearts when he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, opens to us the Scriptures. And we see him bleeding at the cross for us. We see our sin having nailed him to the cross. And that creates in us a spark and a, and a flame and a fire of love and gratitude that cannot be quenched. No devil in hell can quench this flame once God ignites the fire. We see Jesus bleeding and suffering according to the scriptures, and the scriptures are open to us and it it becomes a flame to us. We see the love of God in connection with, with the most astonishing display of justice and severity against sin. We see that God would have mercy, but not at the expense of justice, that he would demonstrate his love. And, and we see just as much of the love of God being demonstrated at the cross where the fire of God fell as the righteousness of God is being displayed. And what it creates is not only does it create a love in our hearts, but it creates a hate in our hearts for the sin that nailed him to the cross. No, the double meaning that I wish to extract from this portion of Scripture is the very heart desire of Jesus. He said, this is one of my mission purposes. I've come to set the earth on fire. And I would that it was already burning. This is what John the Baptist was talking about when he said, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me of whom I am not even worthy to unloose the straps of his sandals. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had come as a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house, there was a symbol that was seen upon each of the disciples, the 120 fire shooting out of their heads. They were like candles. It was the birth of the church and the celebration of the church. I think if we had eyes to see this morning, we would see fire coming out of our heads if God would have draw back that veil. I don't dismiss the significance of fire in relationship to judgment because the Bible does say a lot about it. But I also want to remind you that two of Jesus' disciples, who were a little miffed because Jesus was dissed by the believers or, or sorry, by the unbelievers in Samaria, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to consume them? As did Elijah and Jesus said, Whoa, you guys don't know what manner of spirit you were of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. We are still living in the age of the acceptable or the favorable year of our God. Thank God for that. There is a day in which 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that he's coming again a second time, this time in flaming fire, making vengeance upon all those who obey not the gospel. That's not this message. I want to just do a survey right now, okay? I want to ask... this question, how many of you are familiar with the artist, music Christian artist, Keith Green? Can I just see your hands? Okay, that's more than I, I thought, but but that's cool because uh, Keith Green was a passionate, fiery believer who happened to die in a plane crash with two of his children, along with two missionaries and their six children and the pilot because the small two-engine plane that they were riding in didn't have enough power to carry the overweight uh, of the the plane that was you know the or, or the the people that were on that plane. Uh, he wrote a song, and one of my one of my favorite songs that that he wrote uh, speaks to this message this morning. It's called "Oh Lord, You're Beautiful," and one of the lines is is. Oh, Lord, please light the fire. It becomes a prayer. Oh, Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burned with holy fear. So I ask this question. How do we keep the the love burning? How do we keep the flame lit? I think there's a clue in the song, in the chorus of the song, it's, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Is he beautiful to you this morning? I hope you've discovered that he is, he is the treasured treasure. He is our magnificent obsession. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful, and your, your face is all that I seek. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace Abounds toward me, grace. We could never say enough about it. We could never overspeak its its significance in the life of a believer. Now, 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 Keith Green was a a music, a musician, an artist. He was not a theologian, but I think he would agree with everything I'm about to read to you from Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher and a theologian. It's a little lengthy, but I think. I think it's worth it, so so hang with me for a minute. Spurgeon said, remember, sinner. It is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to your hope, but to Christ." the source of your hope, look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. If you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. I will add, cannot put out that flame. There is one thing, he says, which all of us do too much to be cloud our preaching, though I believe that we do it very unintentionally, namely, The great truth is that not prayer, it's not faith, it's not our doing, it's not our feeling upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and Christ alone. We are apt to think that we're not in a right state, that we don't feel enough, instead of remembering that our business is not with self, but with Christ. Let me beg you, let me beseech you, he says, only look to Christ. Never expect deliverance from self, from ministers, or from any means of any kind apart from Christ. Keep your eyes simply on him, his death, his agonies, his groans, his sufferings, his merits, his glory, his intercession. Let that be fresh upon your mind. When you wake up in the morning, look for him. When you lie down at night, look for him, not to him, look for him. For he is ever present. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do that. My beloved, and Christ will create a fire in you that no opposition of persecution could ever extinguish. In fact, persecution and opposition only becomes the fan that flames that that inflames the fires to burn brighter and to burn higher. I was reading about a pastor in the Soviet Union. The KGB came to him and said, we want to work with you. We'll take care of you. What we want you to do is continue to be the pastor of this congregation, but every week we want to report about these Christians. We'll take care of you, they said. He says, I can't do that to God, and I can't do that to this this flock. And so they sent him to Siberia. I happened to listen to a a report yesterday of a demonstration that was taking place in Moscow. The temperature was minus 5, between minus 5 and minus 10 degrees. That is balmy compared to Siberia. So they sent this pastor to Siberia to become a carpenter and to work on these these areas outside of the work camp. But in the process, he met other believers and they began to have fellowship and, and they would be sent out in radiuses of 60 miles and they would have fellowship and they would have c- communion with one another. And he writes this, he says, that today there are many, many hundreds of churches in Siberia as a result of those small prison fellowship groups. Persecution cannot extinguish this fire. Charles Spurgeon tells about a Swiss preacher who was converted as a young man to Christ while in the streets of France in Paris one day, he watched a believer in Christ being set on fire at the stake. He said, the demeanor of this believer in Christ was such that I could not shake it out of my mind. It became unshakable throughout my life. I was compelled to give my life to Christ. What was meant to destroy one believer became the instrument by which another believer came into the kingdom by which many, many other believers came to Christ. It's the way God works. I would that it was already burning said Jesus. You know it's like the Lord was saying come on bring it on let it, let the opposition come it's not going to destroy my church the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against my church. I was reading the story about George Whitfield the other day. George Whitfield was one of the men that was responsible for the Great Awakening in the 1700s in the colonies of what was to become the United States of America. He made many trips back and forth from from England to to the States. He made some 14 trips to, to Scotland, two trips to Ireland. One time he was almost killed in Ireland got a scar on his forehead that lasted for the rest of his life. It's been reported about him. And I read this in in a blog that was written by, by uh, John Piper. I wish I could do his voice too, but but I can't. But But John Piper was saying that this man's life, the statistics of this man's life are unbelievable. That's probably not a good interpretation, but he would make emphasis on that word, unbelievable. He actually preached more than he slept. When he wasn't preaching, he was praying and meditating. He prayed sometimes on an average of eight hours, or rather he preached sometimes as, as much as eight hours a, a day, seven days a week. He was attributed to preaching eighteen thousand sermons and twelve thousand exhortations, which comes to about over a thirty-year period of a thousand sermons every year. He was like he was like a fire that, that 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 could not be quenched. One of the things that a biographer wrote about him was that his whole life may be said to have been consumed in the delivery of one continuous, uninterrupted sermon, Christ. He was making much of Christ. The reason why I mentioned him was because of his motto. I would love to adopt that motto. He said, I would rather burn out than rust out. I would rather burn out than rust out. Now, I don't think God wants anybody to burn out. He died in his mid-50s. Probably not uncommon for the longevity of men in that particular generation and time. I think God wants us to last as much as we can, to do as much as we can. But I like the sentiment that I would rather burn out than, than rust out. The Greeks had a race in the Olympics that was kind of, kind of unique. The winner wasn't the one who finished first. The winner was the one who finished with his torch still lit. It's one thing to finish the course. It's another thing to finish the course with your torch still lit. Oh, Lord, please... Light the fire that once burned bright and clear. I don't know if you know this, but the many hands that went up about King Green, did you know that he came from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn? Yeah, he was a Brooklyn boy. You know, right on. You know, something good can come out of Brooklyn, you know. Uh, I want to just read a couple of his statements. This was on the cover of his no compromise album that was that was produced in 1978 this is no compromise is what the whole gospel of Jesus is about for i tell you no man can serve two masters in a day when believers seem to be trying to please both the world and the lord which is impossible when people are far more concerned about offending their friends than offending god there is only one answer deny yourself take up your cross and follow him. And I love what he personally wrote. He said, I repent of ever having recorded one single song or having performed one concert if my music and more importantly, my life has not provoked you to godly jealousy to sell out more completely to Jesus. That's what this message is about. That's what this series is about, that you might be provoked to sell out more completely to Christ. For those of you in music ministry, I saved this quote. He said, the only music ministry that will ever hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, are the ones whose life proves the lyrics that they sing. And to whom music is the least important part of their life for glorifying the only worthy one is your most important goal. I commend our music ministry. We've got quality, godly people who put Jesus first. Oh, Lord, you are beautiful, and your face is all that I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds toward me. You know, grace is is not something you store up. Grace isn't something that you first get when you're first saved, and, and it just carries you through. Grace is something that God supplies to us on a daily basis. It flows continuously to us. His grace is available. He gives more grace, the Bible says, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God that in due season he may lift you up. I pray that this would become your prayer and our prayer this morning before we close. Oh Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love. That burned with holy fear. And I promise you this that Jesus came to ignite a fire in your heart that will intensify year after year after year. Seek his face, seek his grace. Let us pray. So Father, would you do that, Lord God? Would you do today what we could not do ourselves? You came, Jesus. You expressed your missionary purpose and desire, and that was to set the hearts of believers on fire with a holy passion for you, to make you above everything and everyone else in this life, So that I can love father or mother and I can love my spouse and I can love my, my children and I can love my siblings. When I put you first and I love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I pray, Lord, that you would ignite a fire this morning here in this house among the members of this ministry oh God that will never be quenched that no devil no weapon formed against it will prosper and send us out Lord God like sparks and embers into the business world and into the schools and into our neighborhoods and into our families that we might become the spark and the flame that sets others on fire as well we thank you Father, for the abundance of your mercy, we thank you that the ministry of Jesus was so manifest and so manifold that it covers so many areas and that we are just in awe of all that you came to accomplish and we believe in your absolute sufficiency and sovereignty. You are Lord and Savior of this body. And we all sit together. Amen.